0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Buddhist Center podcast with me, Chandra Dasa. Delighted to be in the midst of this new season of episodes. And very delighted today to have another episode about a book. Well, actually, it's not really about a book. It's about a life. A Life Lived for the Dharma, which is really what this podcast is about, just trying to bring stories of people's practice as Buddhism hits the modern world and people live it out in amazing, complicated, simple, funny, extraordinary ways around the world. And today's episode is based around a book by our friend Sachidasa. The book is called The Sound of One Hand, and it is probably the funniest Dharma book I've ever read. I an can blush away off camera about this book. I don't know that Western Buddhists have quite got comedy yet. I don't think it's quite a mature field, but this book made me laugh quite a lot out loud. And I felt quite relieved to read it, actually. It captured bits of story that I would love someone to capture. It did that very well. There's loads of great set pieces, loads of anecdotes about, you know, talcum powder, cocaine, prosthesis, which is not something I get to say often as a sentence on this podcast. Anyway, I love the book, so I'm really happy to be welcoming some guests to talk about it. The podcast is going to be led in a way by our fearless friend Shantikara, who is a friend of Sachidasa's, also a fan of this book. So I'm going to welcome Shantikara to the podcast. Hi, Shantikara. Hello. How
1: is it going? Where are you? What are you up to? I am at Adastana, a retreat centre in Herefordshire in the UK, where I live. I've just finished a week retreat, just in time to log back online to record this podcast. Excellent to have you in the beautiful Malvern Hills or near the Mulvern Hills. And also welcome
0: Abai and Andy from London, I think.
2: <laughs> East London. I live in Bow, just down the road from the Buddhist Centre, about, I don't know, 20 minute brisk walk from the Buddhist Centre.
0: Lovely to have you with us. We also have Zach, who some of you might know by now is a member of our team here on the Buddhist Centre Online. He is fab, but I've only met him once in real life. I've met him mostly online and he is in Nottingham in the UK.
3: Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm really happy to be here. I'm really happy to be talking with you all. And last,
0: Sachidasa himself, fearless author of our book. Yeah. Hi, Sachidasa. Thanks for writing the book and thanks for turning up today to talk about it.
4: Hi. Hi, Chandra Dasa. Hi, everyone. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah. And thank you for introducing the book. Yeah. I'm really pleased to be here.
0: I'm assuming, Satyadasa, this really is not your first rodeo with this book, so you've probably had to talk about it endlessly to people.
4: I've just started. I, I had a, an event at the London Buddhist Centre, and I went up to Ipswich last night. So it's not really isn't about my third rodeo. Some. <laughs>
0: And how's the response been so far? Are people kind of into it? Are they they kind of laughing along?
4: Yeah, well, if you can't make people laugh when you write about your life, you really probably shouldn't write about it. But yes, people have been really enjoying it. And it's bowled me over, actually. It's kind of beyond my expectations, the response so far. Brilliant. Shantikara, this was partly your idea, really, to do this episode. What made you want to
0: post a conversation about this work?
1: A couple of things. One is that I'm a good friend of Sachidasa. He led a four-year study group for me very early on when I was coming along to the Buddhist Centre and that was about eight years ago I met him and he was talking about writing a book then. So it's sort of been in the background of our friendship and then I read a manuscript of it maybe a year ago and then I've just finished rereading it. I really love the book. It really speaks to me as particularly someone in my 20s getting involved in a Buddhist life very sort of heartening and yeah, funny and encouraging. An obvious place to start is that the book, does is called The Sound of One Hand. And there's quite a sort of adorable picture of you on the front, although we can't see your head, but we've got your body and you've got one hand in your pocket, it seems, and another one outside. So I wonder if you could say something about the title and we could start there and see where we go.
4: So the sound of one hand clapping is a Zen koan, and it was too good not to use that koan, but I wanted to make it my own. So obviously, cutting off the clapping, it's the sound of one hand. We write with one hand, don't we? So a memoirs written with one hand, but it's a story about growing up with one hand. That's where I needed to start my writing, really, the writing journey, talking about something very personal, very relatable, hopefully not that you have to have one hand to relate to it. But I wanted to start with that story, and the pun was too good, and it stuck. And quite a lot of the
1: story is about directing attention away from having one hand in the first instance, the childhood, and then later on becoming comfortable. And that was particularly the bit for me that I felt able to relate to. I don't have one hand, but I did have things I directed attention away from and I'm slowly becoming comfortable with them. But I wonder how other people responded to that sort of part.
2: <laughs> well, I thinking yeah, I really loved, there there is a part in the book where you talk about being on the dance floor and having a sleeve cover your hand as you're dancing. And there was something about that that really resonated. Just the age and the awkwardness. You're so wanting people to notice you and one wants whoever you're attracted to, to notice you and think you're attractive. And there are all these things about oneself that don't feel attractive or one has fears that they aren't attractive. And it's just the way you describe that brought that time of life flooding back. Yeah, I thought it was very moving.
4: Yeah. I'm not totally comfortable with it even now. It's not like I kind of resolved my feelings. I was on the train yesterday coming home and a little boy was looking at my hand. My hand was sitting on the table and I noticed him looking at it. He was about eight years old. I just experienced this urge to take my hand away and put it somewhere else. And I kind of interrogated, why is that? He's just looking at my hand. But I guess when you're growing up particularly, you don't want to be defined by something. You don't want people to look at it and think, That's the first thing they notice about you and you don't know what's going on in their minds. Maybe they don't even care. Maybe they have a horrified response to it. They could have all kinds of response to it. People don't tend to say what their response is, so you never really find out. I just wanted to kind of make it invisible if possible. I couldn't really make it invisible. That's the thing about a visible disability is you can't really make it invisible. You can try, but it doesn't work. So yeah, as you say, I'd let my sleeves flop over it or put it in my pocket, like on the front cover, just sort of tuck it out of the way somewhere, put it behind my back. I still have these reflexes. It's it's, it's funny, really, although I'm much more aware of all of that going on in my mind nowadays. Well, there's this
1: moment in the book where you talk about a group of people, but the number of hands being less than the group. Zach, you were making reference to that before. So I wonder if you could say something about that.
3: Yeah, of course. Well, I guess one of the main reasons I'm here is that I also was born with one hand, (laughs) without my right hand. Well, I actually, I have a little bit more of my arm missing, so to speak. (laughs) So I was born without my right forearm. Again, I don't really know why it's one of these sort of congenital birth defects, as is stated in the book. I suppose that that's why I'm here. And my first impressions around the book were, well, actually, to be honest, I still feel like I'm processing it because in my adult life, I have not really met anyone with my condition. I don't even really know what to call it. But I haven't met in my adult life someone like me specifically. I had as a child met people, the young boys, girls that had similar situations. So to read the book and essentially be reading really similar experience to you, one that you thought was really unique to you, is quite bizarre, and I'm still processing that. I found the book deeply moving, and yeah, I think that's what I can sort of say in some ways, is that I'm still sort of processing it. I think there's something to be said that for a long time I thought that people just didn't understand, or my suffering was really unique to me in some ways just reading this book, just kind of an eye opener. Oh, no, actually, there are other people that pretty much experienced exactly the same thing as you. <laughs> that was both heartening and also a bit like, oh, but I thought I was unique. <laughs> so it's just, yeah, it's very good to meet you, Satcherdasa, through the book, actually. It's very wonderful.
1: It was quite an excited moment when I visited you, in Nottingham and happened to mention to Sacha dasa And he was sort of like, oh, my God, it'll just like you're saying, oh, I haven't met somebody either i was sort of quite surprised at the warmth of that connection from sachidasa as well
4: yeah it isn't that common actually as a birth defect i don't know maybe there's i don't know 30 or 40 children born a year with a congenital birth defect like that so it's not that many and I remember seeing a guy on the tube who had a similar thing when I was about 29 and I just wanted to get away from him. I didn't want to relate to him. I didn't like the idea that I had a disability. I didn't want to get into any of that terminology. But I felt sufficiently uncomfortable and I'd been a practicing Buddhist for about nine years at that point. And I thought that's interesting, isn't it? What's going on here? I don't want to acknowledge what's happening here on the tube. So that led me to go on this activity week with about 40 children who all have congenital birth defects, arms missing, or part of an arm, or in some cases, both hands, mostly just missing one arm and having various little bits and bobs going on at the end of the arm, like me. Yeah, a lot of them were more fluent in how they were relating to their arm than I was at 30 years old. I remember going into a pub with some of the adult volunteers, and they all had the same thing as well. And it was just being mirrored and the feeling of seeing what I look like from the outside. And seeing how I carry, if you're grabbing two pints of beer or something and you clasp them to your chest because you have to, or you just do things awkwardly the way you might use cutlery. I mean, I know what I look like in a sense, because I can see myself doing it, but just to have it reflected back for that to be in the open, it was awkward. I wanted to get away actually at certain points and go with the normal people. But just persisting through it, and it was a very moving experience, particularly seeing children and recognising it's an emblem of suffering. It's an emblem of something being not quite right, isn't it? You've got this body, you're born. It's great in other respects, but you've got this defect, this thing that's missing, this thing that's not not quite right so in a way i'm hoping and my hope is through telling that story now that's one of the beauties of a memoir is that you tell your story precisely enough and it's great to hear that you zach related to it as somebody with one hand but actually of course we can all relate to we all have something that is a bit in our past in our conditions of our lives may not be visible may be invisible may be something to do with how we perceive our history our past our family or whatever it is and you know i think it's a kind of a relatable thing and we're not unique are we as you say zach we're not unique we're Marvellously ununique, actually, but we are unique. Let's say that as well. That's the paradox.
0: Yeah, it's great to hear you evoke Zach this thing of the sense of meeting Sachidasa through the book. Sachidasa, we've only met a couple of times, I think, but that was one of the strongest senses I had from reading your book. Was I really met you? And although the book is a book about the hand in all senses, <laughs> the existential hand, the metaphorical hand, all of the hands, the thousand hands of Avoloktesha or something, it was also very strongly a book about your mind. There's a lot of interiority in it. There's also plenty of action. So if people like action memoirs, there's lots of action and Great set pieces in this, but it is a very strong and coherent picture of somebody's mind as they quest and figure stuff out and get reactive and all of that stuff, which I loved when I was reading it because I thought, hey, this is just like the mirror of my mind, right? Reactive little tyke. So, you know, I was really struck by that, that it wasn't a memoir just about the hand, it was a memoir about a mind and your strong sense of interiority.
4: I guess it was important that I wanted to unfold that interior aspect and, you know, be honest, to be as straightforward as possible. I wonder if you felt
0: exposed at all. Was there a parallel between the exposure of the hand as the theme and the exposure of your mind, opening yourself up to sight?
4: That's a really interesting question. Yeah, it did feel like I was writing things that are exposing. It is exposing. I had to write about them and get to the honest core of my experience. And I think that was the struggle with writing, is to get to it honestly, simply, and and state it. Don't talk about it, just show it. And I think once I'd got down to that level, it felt okay. It felt like it was sort of true, to use that word. And then I thought, well, it's true. That is what it was like. So I trust that other people's minds are similar, and we all go through similar internal shenanigans in our lives. We all have these moments on the path of growing and maturing and becoming more aware where we feel these pinch points of where our conditioning really bites us so i I just wanted to portray that really truthfully and 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 as honestly as possible but yeah it does feel exposing i'm trying to think about that aspect too much but it's interesting parallel yeah between the exposure of having a disability and being seen and writing a memoir that reveals all that that is interesting i hadn't actually thought of that
3: Yeah, I think that I really picked up on that one thing when I was telling people about this book. I was actually talking with people quite a lot when I was at Padmaloka recently. I was talking with a friend and he was recommending the book to everyone. And I finally started reading it while I was on retreat. And the first thing that I picked up on was just it's uncompromisingly honest in many aspects. And also that I got a sense from the book that the way that you were interpreting your life was changing over the course of the book, which I thought was really interesting. And I also think there's just a lot of value in people training for ordination reading this book just to get a sense of a process which I feel like that's quite unique to this book. I don't know if there are other memoirs like that but for me there was something very valuable in experiencing your process over many years training towards ordination.
1: I'm wondering if coming in on that is kind of like a bounce point to that Zach but Abayanandi I was thinking of you and being ordained and teaching at the London Buddhist Centre and it's a surprisingly kind of personal and revealing thing to do you know you think you're just teaching meditation technique but I wondered how you find telling your story to strangers and members of the public
2: One of the more surprising things about teaching was realising how much of your life comes into it and how much you end up revealing about yourself, which I sort of hadn't expected when I first started teaching. I I do envy people like Satyadato who are able to do it in such a humorous way. I think there's something about humour that's just so, it really draws you in and and helps one to feel very connected to the story or to what we are teaching. It makes everything so much more accessible. So I really loved that aspect of the book. Also having lived in communities, some of the things that Satya Dasa talks about, about community life. I mean, a few of us, were sitting around laughing about, I, mean, I think it's just a sentence, but in community, you make all decisions by consensus. It is the most cumbersome process. <laughs> I suppose if you've ever lived collectively, things that you'd really recognise that are very funny.
4: In a way, this book was an extension of something that we all very often do in Tree Ratna. We tell our life stories and we reflect on our life. And it's a really precious practice to do. And like you were saying, Zach, actually, when you reflect on your life, it can change your sense of your life. It can change your story. There's a great saying by a guy called Stephen Grosch, I think. If we don't find a way to tell our story, the story tells us. And telling the story, you are creating the story to some degree. Of course, you're trying to be truthful and tell what happened. There's always that sense of, you know, the facts, what happened. But by really reflecting on your life, even if it's just telling a friend, sitting down, talking for an hour or whatever about your life, you are kind of creating your story. And that can change. Tell your life story now, tell it in 10 years, it'll be different. And the events of your life take on different meanings as you get older. And in a way, we haven't finished the past. The past is still to be discovered, what that actually meant about our lives and some difficulties that we have of course, can become things that really enrich our lives. And they are the things that we must go through in order to enrich our lives. In a way, there isn't any way around it. And I think that process you're talking about, Zach, in a way, I was trying to show that process. It's not a straightforward process. It's not like you become a Buddhist, you start meditating, you go on retreat and you get happier and happier and all your conflicts vanish and everybody loves you and you go off into the glorious sunset. It's never like that. You kind of go into conflicts, you go into difficulties sometimes. There's a whole range of experiences experiences. experiences that can open up on the path. But as you go along it, your sense of your life and the meaning of your life and what's of significance can change and enrich. And that's a beautiful thing if we can reflect on our lives, particularly over a longer period of time. And it's a creative act. Your life isn't set. No one's life is a thing. What I realized writing a memoir is that what you have a naive idea that the past is already done and you just have to get a pen and learn how to write it down. But that's very naive. It's actually not a done thing at all. That's what my hero, Bob Dylan, who I mentioned in the book, says. I'm looking forward to seeing how the past shapes up.
1: One of the things on my mind about the book and one of the things I enjoyed about it is that I've bought a copy to give to my mum. You tell a wonderful story of coming out as a Buddhist and how it might be easier to come out as other things. And you also just tell the story of becoming a Buddhist and training for ordination and becoming an order member. And as you were saying a minute ago, it's not necessarily a story of progressive happiness. (laughs) You know, not in my case and also not exactly in your case, Sachidasa, in your story. And that's quite difficult for other people in my life to understand. Why would I get more and more involved in Buddhism? And seemingly from their point of view, become a bit more of a mess. I just think you tell that story really well. And that's one of the things I've heard the people I've been talking to really resonating with. So Abhay Andy was saying living in a community, people that live in communities will resonate with that bit. But this sort of thing of becoming a Buddhist and committing to that and the difficulty and the mess of it, you tell that story Yeah, really, really kind of openly and warmly, even for friends of Buddhists, it would be helpful for them to read, I
4: think. Oh, that's really good to hear. The real reason I wrote the book, in a way, was to try to communicate this thing that so many of us share. Certainly all the people here today share where your life is, let's call it an opening of the imagination, or you have a sense of life when you're growing up is one thing. Within my culture, where I grew up, it was, you know, it was a good culture. It was humanistic. It was materialistic. It was sort of all sorted out in a way. You couldn't really fault it on a certain level, but there was something missing. There was something not there. And I think when we go on retreat, we start to meditate, And we hear the teachings or for me it was the sangha it was seeing the community in action and all these different ways of life whole different presentation of life and suddenly i felt that something really opened up for me in my life that i couldn't have expected that i didn't expect that wasn't preluded by what i'd done before it was amazing and that's really hard to communicate to your mum partly i kind of started writing this as an explanatory note to my (laughs) mum (laughs) she died unfortunately before i could give her the results but it's hard to communicate so when you go to your friends or your you know your relatives and you tell them what you're doing it can all fall short of that core thing, which is this opening of what we can only call really the spiritual perspective on life, which changes so much. It doesn't solve it. It doesn't sort everything out. We've still got ourselves. We've still got our conditions and our minds and all of our habits and all of our views and things. But there's something else entered in. In order to communicate that, I realized I had to clothe that experience in a real life. I had to really say something that was down to earth. My hope was that through that, the more essential aspect can glimmer, which is that we're all trying to be on a path towards meaning and make this path. We don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. I'll speak for myself. I don't know where it's going, really. But It's exciting and it's meaningful. And I've seen so many people over the years have this kind of transformation. And it seems so important that I just wanted to write about it. But that was a struggle.
2: I really resonated with you buying it for your mum because I felt like, oh, I definitely wanted to give it to members of my family, partly because that journey is so well articulated. My dad has this sense of, oh, I think I liked you a bit better before. (laughs) You know, you are a bit more fun before and now you're not quite so much fun anymore. He wants to understand what's going on. And I can't quite articulate it in a way that makes sense to him. And I think he would read the book if I gave it to him. And it would be a pathway to him understanding a bit more about my life.
1: Zach, I know you were saying when we were talking about the book earlier, that as someone training to be ordained to join the order, the Triatna Buddhist order that we're part of, you were struck by that element of the book. I wonder if you could say... A bit more about that, what struck you, or what resonated
3: yeah, well, I think that, like many people, in my own experience, the first two and a half years are just plain sailing of increasingly positive mental states, and then the shadow comes out of nowhere or all of the baggage. All of that in my own experience caught up with me, and I had to work with it. It's just messy business, you know, it's messy business working with one's life and especially in those areas that are on the peripheral of our awareness. I can imagine for many people that that's a very positive thing to see that actually, oh, it is a bit messy and you don't really know what it's going to look like. I think that that's helpful for someone training for ordination, that actually you're entering a space where really you just don't know where it's going to take you. Already, comparatively, my spiritual journey has not been as long in terms of time. And already it's taken me in areas I couldn't even really imagine. If someone had told me four years ago that I'd be living in a residential community above a Buddhist center and oh, that I would be talking about my arm <laughs> on something like this, then I would have just never believed you because I didn't even really talk about my arm until comparatively recently in the last couple of years. Much of what I was saying I I've resonated so much with is that most of the time I just tried to hide and just tried to blend in. But over the last couple of years, it's just been increasingly obvious that I just can't do that just can't do that anymore. And it's almost it funny in a way that you can think that you can get around looking at stuff that you find difficult. I think I actually generally thought that for a while. That, oh I won't need to look at that. It's fine. It's not even a big deal.
1: <laughs> One of the things that you and I have in common, Zach, is that we're both men in our 20s. And Satchadasa, when you encounter Buddhism, when you start going on retreat and start getting involved at the London Buddhist Centre, you're a man in your 20s. And another thing that really stands out for me in the book is that sort of tension of growing up, in the context of being a Buddhist and around, like Zach was just mentioning, people who are more experienced than you and have things to say and lessons to give, but you've also got to learn your own lessons. You've got these kind of conflicts, particularly around career and money and love and girlfriends and romance. You have this wonderful phrase where you talk about the romantic myth being hammered in with your first fairy tale. There's a line like that. and You've got this beauty and open response to Buddhism, to the teaching of the Buddha, and you want to live it out. You've got these other things you want to do as well, which is one of the things I responded to as someone also trying my best to live a Buddhist life and trying to work it out as I go. I wonder if you could say something about those threads.
4: Yeah, I came along. That's the expression we use, isn't it? I came along when I was 22 and I moved into a Buddhist community when I was 23 and stayed there for six years. Very formative time. As you say, you're living with people who may be 10, 20, 30 years older than you in some cases, who have different life experiences and at different stages in their life. And we have this dharma, which is just so wonderful. It all makes sense. I'm quite rational and intellectual about it or whatever, but it definitely made sense to me. I loved it. And I responded to it in a deep way. But it was presenting a whole myth of my life, which was not the one I'd grown up with. And I quite like the one I'd grown up with. I definitely wanted to have more romantic adventures. Maybe when I was a lot older, I'd get into the Buddhist myth. And yet they seem to be saying living in a community and then going on retreat several times a year, you're meditating with your mind and things like It doesn't contain any reference to the romantic myth or earning money or any kind of success that I'd been built up for. And that is attention. That was attention for me. And I'm sure it's attention for many young people when they get on the path probably different kinds of tensions for anyone. So that can kind of sour things in a way. It's quite difficult to live with that. You can end up feeling conflicted as neither here nor there. So then the going got really sort of muddy for me. At one point, I was saying it's like falling into a quagmire of self-doubt or doubt about the teachings or doubt about other people or wanting to just knock it down and have done with the whole thing. So when I had these conflicts, different myths, different pulls, different yearnings that seemed diametrically opposed. I just had to live in that for a while. I had to experience the conflict of all of that. It never really completely resolves all these things, but at times it certainly made me unhappy.
3: It sounded like it's just a bit of a process of integration, isn't it? In terms of something around constellation in a way, where you're bringing other aspects of your life in relation to that kind of myth that you're trying to make central in your life of the Three Jewels. I thought that there was just an increasing depth more of you becoming involved in some ways. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. But even
4: to say that it's about integration, this is one of the ways that we often talk about integrating our lives around the Buddha, the three jewels. Sometimes even that can sound like, or I would interpret that as meaning, well, actually you've just got to subtly get rid of all those other things that are a bit more troublesome, get over that and then be integrated. That isn't what's actually being said, of course, but that's the way that I felt it. I had to sort of hurry through those other stages of life because they were okay. Nobody criticised. Everybody understands the drives of romance, love, sex career everyone understands that but i felt sometimes an urge to integrate it all and yet something was bucking against that i didn't want to integrate it but then where was i left with did i have to throw out some of this really beautiful dharma understandings and these wonderful people in the community who i'd become friends with by this point and how do i stay true to that and yet open to all the other forces and ideas in my life and not try to resolve them either, not just try to sort of jump one way or the other. At a certain point, I didn't feel like I was able to jump one way or the other. I just had to tolerate a certain amount of doubt and discomfort. You've talked already about
1: one hero of your book, Bob Dylan, who features at regular intervals. But you've got these other heroes, men who are very committed Buddhists who have been around longer than you that you look up to. And as you were talking then, such dust, I was thinking about moments in the book where those men, your sort of teachers, if you like, You tell the story of them literally saying to you, look, it's completely okay if you want to go and do something else. But there's this tone of not quite believing them. or that's what I remember, that I look up to people, I seek their advice. They say, really, I'll still love you if you do that. But I hear that's not the best thing to do. But that really isn't what's been said, that sort of tension. I really appreciated that bit of your writing, that bit of your story, this tension of having guides and you sort of read into what they're saying, maybe beyond what they're actually saying.
4: I remember suddenly exactly what you said. A lot of kindness, a lot of tolerance of what I was going through, listening to me repeating the same old conflicts and the same old thoughts again and again, some of my good friends. And I think the thing for me, and I'm sure this is true for other people, is that you can really identify your spiritual life with a set of conditions. And I joined the London Buddhist Centre. I got involved in the community. I was very committed to being on the path to ordination. And for me, the idea of not Doing that was tantamount to a sort of failure of something really important, a failure at the most important level, which is not right, of course. It isn't that. But if there's an over-identification with a particular set of conditions in terms of that giving you meaning and validating, if you like, your quest and its worthiness, that can be problematic so it's quite hard to leave. It's quite hard to leave an organization. It's quite hard to leave a community of friends, particularly. You feel like you're turning your back on something of value. and Maybe you feel a bit of a failure. But of course, it doesn't shape out like that necessarily. You just move on to the next thing and you realize, well, you can move. You can do different things. It's okay. And I put down the quest for ordination for a while because somebody said to me, I needed to think the unthinkable. I needed to think things that I was not admitting into my mind. I needed to think, can I just leave this now? Can I just put this down? Is that okay? And it was painful, but valuable to do that and to realize that you can leave when I say leave you can just do something different with your life, it's okay. And then what happened was for me is I'm more able to come back on my own. Well, in a different way.
1: I've been watching you nod enthusiastically by and Andy. I wonder if you'd like to speak out some of your nod.
2: I came along to Buddhism, you know, I was older when I came along. And in common with a lot of people who come along at my age, there's this sort of envy for people who have come along at a younger age, assuming that if you come along in your 20s, then you've got so much time to sort yourself out, in a way. You started when you're 20 rather than when you're 40. But it sort of idealizes something that's not entirely true and also, I think, could get in the way of empathy for younger people struggling to make their way with these conflicting desires, which aren't so conflicting if you come along when you're older, because actually, you know, you've done a lot of that stuff.
1: One of the other features of this thread of doubt, confusion, what were you going to do with your life is, well, people listening to this might not know that our tradition, Ratna, is young-ish, just over 50. And I can't remember if it's a line in the book, Satyadasa, or, or something that came up in a conversation we had about your book. But there was this line that I remember of the order having turned 40 was starting to wonder what it's done with its life. As it happens in my community today, we ended up talking about midlife crises, not actually out of talking about this book, but we were talking about midlife crisis, this idea of something turning 40. There's this part of your journey into ordination runs alongside the journey of our tradition, Tree Ratna, getting to a certain age where there was quite a lot of other people talking about, oh, have I made a mistake with my life? Have I missed things out? Do I now want to do something different? I thought that was an interesting feature of the story, that universal tone of this sort of questioning of how to live one's life.
4: I was about 35 or so when the order turned 40. And I remember looking up, as it were, at the people who are a generation above me and seeing how many of them were struggling. There was a whole period and it went on for quite a long time when a lot of people were reappraising what they'd done with their lives. Was it such a good thing to have moved into a community when they were young and maybe not had a family? Maybe they then felt that there was some group pressure not to do that or nobody else was doing it anyway. So we tend to be influenced by what people around us are doing. So a lot of people felt they were influenced in certain ways, maybe not very sinister ways, but just because that's what people were doing. And then, you know, life doesn't quite go along the trajectory that you think it's going to go along, obviously. And I started to notice I wasn't having a midlife crisis, but I was seeing people going through that and it's a natural kind of maturation. Do these meditation practices that we do really work? What does it mean to say that they work? And people were exploring different meditation practices and different ways of doing things. Different sorts of understandings were emerging in responses to people's experience of maybe this doesn't quite work or there's something missing. So there was a lot of questioning going on in the order, not universally. There was a whole range of experience. and I have not found a way of clearing up what exactly the experience is. There's just a range of experience. But there was certainly a lot of maturation, ordinary human maturation. And so wonderfully lucky to have the generations above me go through all these maturing processes and give the benefits of that wisdom when it started in the 60s the 70s you were old if you were 30 now you're old if you're old <laughs> it's been fascinating to see that story of the unfolding of this dharma journey in the west among not just our movement i try to bring in other movements as well it must be a common shared thing the dharma is young in the West. There's all to play for. We talk about it as though it's a sorted out thing and we just got to tweak this or tweak that. And it's not really like that, is it?
3: There was a particular point. I mean, it's actually very close to the beginning of the book which I really resonated with, which was, you were saying something about problems, problem solving, specifically in this problem solving attitude that you had, and you'd figured out how to do all of these things that having one hand meant that it was difficult to do. You'd found a way to do all sorts. I always think of tying shoelaces. I don't think you gave this example, but just remember that's the kind of prime example of like, I was, how do you tie your shoelaces? And then you figured that out, but then there was an experience when you were in school And someone was giving you a hard time over something, you know, just basically kind of low-key bullying. You realised at that point that, oh, this was a problem that wasn't going to go away or you weren't going to solve as such. And I just thought, gosh, I really hadn't thought of it like that because that's sort of existential aspect of this. You can't solve on the same kind of terms as you can solve just like, how am I going to tie my shoelaces?
4: Exactly. So, Zach, that is the koan, isn't it? That is the problem that can't be solved on its own level we've got the two hands that can clap. What's the sound of one hand clapping? I mean, it's never particularly resonated with me, that idea, but in a way, what it's pointing to is another type of consciousness another type of mind that isn't obsessed with the duality of me and you and self and world and that kind of thing so yeah having a visible disability like that does present you with a problem that cannot be solved on the level at which one would like it to be solved primarily for me that was kind of a social level as you say it's relatively easy with one hand to work out a lot of fixes for things and that didn't really bother me zips and buttons and you know, riding my bike and stuff, I understand you ride a motorcycle. I'm really looking forward to hanging out with you one time and going on a motorcycle ride because I've always had this fantasy. Motorcycles are one of those things I've never cracked. I've always looked at them in the shops and thought, I really can't do that. There's too much going on on the left. And it's not like, you know, my dad could have just flipped it on my BMX to the other side, but you can't really do that on the bike. So I'm looking forward to going on a bike ride with you. But those kind of things you can sort out. But yeah, then the social problem you can't sort out so easily. It's what forces us to grow, to find another perspective. And that's a long, you know, it's a lifelong
3: process. Yeah, there was something that came up in the book as well that I also resonated around the arm, which was, I can't remember exactly who, whether it was Yana Varcha or Maitre Bandhu. I think it might be Maitre Bandhu actually who said to you, he says, Oh, do you think the ham has anything to do with why you're here? And you were like, nah. something like that and I was thinking oh gosh yeah but when you made that realization and that there's that existential aspect that social aspect of the arm that you were talking about I just think it's obviously such a big part of what drew you to Buddhism isn't it even if it's not explicitly so it's just there's something of that existential aspect to it I guess I'm coming to terms more with the fact that well that's obviously a lot of the reason that I'm here in some way I can't sort of ignore that as part of my journey now.
4: That's right. I mean, it probably is really obvious to other people that it must affect you deeply on all different levels, but it's not something that I wanted to be associated with. I came to the Dharma because I understood the Dharma teachings and I was relating to all of the great stuff of the Dharma. And I didn't want to be reminded that maybe it was my own suffering or my own life that pushed me in some ways in this direction. But it's never as straightforward. There's never one clear narrative or one clear story So I could say, oh, well, it's my hand. That's the reason why I started to meditate, because I was a bit unhappy at university, or I was pretty happy, actually, a lot of the time. And yes, it's true. It was there. There was a grain of difficulty in it. And yeah, it must have had an effect on me. But like all of us, there's multiple stories in our lives. It's hard to reduce down to one thing. I had a grandfather who was interested in Buddhism. I had this family story, this family connection going back to the 1960s. My grandfather tried to teach me briefly meditation when I was a boy, you know, and there were plenty of other strands and themes in my life as to why I might be becoming interested in Buddhism. And they're there too. And I'm sure that's true for all of us. There's different stories in our lives very often. It's not easy to reduce things and pin down the answer. I came to Buddhism because I had this disability. Yeah, sure, there's truth in that. But
3: Yeah, there seems something good in just having a kind of working narrative, isn't it? Oh, this is relevant at the moment, and this feels really alive. But also, yeah, it just changes, doesn't
1: it? One of the gifts of the book, Sachidasa, is reading a story of a life with different tangents and different elements, like you and Zach were just talking about. There's more to it than the one hand, and there's lots of other features. Life is kind of complicated, and one of the things that was joyous for me reading the book was this sense of you can't quite get life wrong. Life might be unsatisfying or complicated, but it is yours to live and your story, the book meanders around and you have this tension around Korea and the girlfriends through much of the book. And then you're a lawyer with money and you're going to nice swanky restaurants and, well, you're now married and you have a son. At the beginning of the book, that would have sounded like a problem. That arising in your mind of wanting something like that, you might have thought of as a problem. But through the arc of your story, it all kind of fits together. And That for me is one of the main gifts or almost relief. It was a relief for me to feel something of that story that you can't completely get it wrong. That was
4: the thought that came to me, actually. When I was writing it, I was thinking, well, I'm not famous. I haven't done anything that's like mind-blowingly exceptional or anything. I've had my life, in many ways, it's been a wonderful and blessed life. But it has its humdrum aspects every day. There's difficulties and you know doubts and concerns and, and things that don't go the way I want them to. But I've had this sense that it's the right kind of life for me, this kind of life. And I think that's when I started to... Feel like I could become ordained, you know, I could give up a certain level of doubt. This is the right kind of life for me. I don't know whether it's a perfect kind of life. Maybe there's a better life going on somewhere else. You know, that feeling that if you just haven't quite got the right life, you'd be better off with one down the road. Probably a lot of people have that feeling of not quite being in the right place, but maybe that's not the case. There has to be a sense of a creative thread running through life, doesn't there, for it to be satisfying. One can go off in all kinds of tangents, run into all kinds of patches which don't seem to be going anywhere and and difficulties and things. But then the beautiful thing that I found about being involved with a Sangha and you know, having those conditions to practice in and, and friendships in particular is that it's kept me creative. It's helped me, and some of the people I mentioned in the book have helped me to live a life which is more creative. I couldn't have done it on my own. I mean, what can you do on your own? You know, suffer. That's what you can do on your own. So I'm incredibly grateful to the founder of Ratna Sengarekshda and the people who learnt from him and the people who learnt from them and the friendships that have been so formative in my
0: life. I was quite struck, particularly coming to the end of the book, there was a kind of full circle element to it. So the book starts with you and your family and you and your grandpa. And at the end of the book, it's very moving how you bring it back to that and you go and find your grandpa's book. There are two books. There's your book, the book of your life, as it's kind of unspooling itself, and obviously as you're writing it, and then there's your grandfather's book, and get the title right, An Existential Ontological Approach to Contemplative Experience by Donald Henry Huckle Martin which has to be the best title and <laughs> name ever. And I did get that really strong sense at the end. It was very moving that you had fulfilled something. You'd fulfilled a relationship to him, a bit like the Buddha going back home to visit his family, having left home at the start of his journey, going back home and connecting with them. And this book that you've produced that's come out of your love, out of your tension, all of it being in relationship to those people and that lineage of family as well as the lineage of practitioners.
4: Mm, yeah, thank you so much for saying that. I do feel that I obviously had a connection with my grandfather before I started writing that was quite significant but but writing about him, thinking about his life, trying to empathize with a man who my mother found very difficult, he was quite controlling, he was a bit obsessive, and he was very obsessive actually, and he made her life reasonably miserable by being obsessed with Eastern philosophy, Buddhism, Hinduism, Jainism, any kind of ism from the East, and then from the West also Heidegger, Hegel, and all this philosophy that he then wrote into that book, and I felt that strong connection with him and his journey, he was growing up before the war, the Second World War, then after that, at a time when there wasn't such a Sangha available, there was no such thing as a really established Buddhism in this country. So I had a lot of different opportunities to him and whether he would have taken those opportunities, I don't know. And I wanted to make it a family story as well and a story about the lineage of friends, of the friendship in our movement. And yeah, to weave those together just so coincided at the end of the book with his 100th anniversary and i went back to visit his grave which we don't visit much but now we're starting to visit it a bit more as a family so my uncle's going to go down and do something down there we might go down there and chant some scriptures or a mantra or something so yeah i did want to honor his experience even though he wasn't an easy man for sure
0: well thanks for the gift of your testimony as it were giving a voice to different bits of the complexity of what it is to join a modern buddhist community From inspiration to cults to crazy friendships to crazy adventures, sorrow and joy, the whole gamut. Yeah, it's been lovely just watching a bunch of people come together around somebody's story. Stories seem so important. This is what this podcast is about, telling stories just as a way to make something vivid and real and hopefully a bit crucial for anyone listening. This is how you can live a life with this kind of urgency, this kind of beauty, this kind of humour. And if you like what you heard, please tell other people. The great ocean of podcasts gets deeper and deeper and deeper every week. I can remember the old days when there was hardly any podcasts about Buddhism, but now there's probably like a thousand, at least. So if you've enjoyed this one, do tell people, write a great review for us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any of the platforms that you get your podcasts from. We'll be back soon with more episodes. You can also find lots of live events to go to at thebuddhisinter.com forward slash live. Most importantly, I guess for today's episode, please get Sanchadasa's book. We will put the link in the show notes for you so that it's really easy just to go there and you will be delivered an absolutely fantastic few days of reading guarantee you will laugh out loud a couple of times during this book, at least. I found myself chuckling away like a fool the other day reading it. And thanks to you, Andy, for tuning in for our conversation.
2: Oh, yeah, I've really enjoyed the conversation. In fact, it's made me want to read the book again. <laughs> so yeah, thank you very much. Thank you all very much.
0: And thanks to you, Zach, for showing up and not just editing the podcast this week, but being a guest star.
3: I've really enjoyed it as well. And I really liked that last point about lineage, particularly. There's something that I was thinking, well, I know Ratna Gosha features in the book. He's present quite a lot. And he is also the president of the Nottingham Buddhist Center. And he also led my Kalyana Mitra ceremony. So this is a specific ceremony that you have in Chiratna as a formally marking friendship. So it's just interesting that the web of friendships that spread across True, and, and it's just remarkable. I'm very grateful and just very remarkable to be able to meet you such a das and, and read about your life. As said sort of basically think that that's one of the best gifts that we can give in some ways is articulate our lives and then spark off things in other people. It's just it's just great. So yeah, I've just really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks to you,
0: Kshantikara, for convening us so marvellously and just anyway diving right into the important thing
1: that matters in this conversation. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure, a really enjoyable, very warm, friendly conversation. Thanks very much.
0: And last, of course, thanks to you, Sachidasa, for writing the book. I hope you write more books. I think the world would benefit a great deal from what you've got to say about the Dharma. And yeah, I look forward to connecting with you around that on future episodes.
4: Oh, thanks very much. Thank you, everyone. You write a book and you're quite close to it. And now I'm finding out what it was for and what it was really about. And through other people and listening. So that's really fascinating and very heartening. And I'm very grateful for that. So thanks for the opportunity to come along and chat.
0: And thanks to you out there for listening. What is a conversation without an audience or without people to communicate with? And in a way, the marvelous adventure of co creating a community that's genuinely global at this point feels like a miracle. The technology is a miracle. We're bouncing off of satellites every week. It's amazing. So thank you for showing up and listening. Look forward to seeing you again next week for another episode. Take care for now.